Starting a new series today, Christianity 101. Today, what is a Christian? Back in the 80s, William Ashley Sunday played professional baseball for three different teams in the National League. How many have heard of William Ashley Sunday? All right. One person, two people. His name was Billy Sunday, and it was the 1880s. And uh, his reputation was one of a hard-driving, hard-sliding, hard-living ball player. And uh, then God got a hold of this man in 1886, and he came to faith in Jesus, and it changed everything for Billy. He left baseball and a lucrative $3,000-a-year contract to become the assistant secretary of the YMCA. And back in those days, the YMCA had a pretty strong commitment to Christian values, and he loved ministry, and he loved to share the gospel. He loved to help people. He counseled the uh, suicidal. He visited people in the hospital. Um, He uh, worked with homeless people, and he had a great passion to serve Jesus. Um, By the first two decades of the 20th century, now my grandfather was alive during this time, 1900 to 1920, He was the most prominent evangelist in the U.S. A lot of you don't know that. He had the biggest impact on the U.S. than any one man during that time. One of my favorite quotes from Billy Sunday is this. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. Now, he died in 1935, so, you know, automobiles were like a pretty big thing in those days because he saw the whole thing coming from the horse from having horses with your carriage and then having horseless carriages but that was a powerful statement for him to make going to church doesn't make you a christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile and uh people had to stop and think, what is he talking about? Because a lot of people thought that going to church meant you meant that you were a Christian. You know, I went to church growing up with my family. And um, in fact, I was confirmed in my church. And I did uh, all the things the church, I shouldn't say all the things, but I did what I was supposed to do. And I said the things that I was supposed to to say, and um, I thought I was a Christian, and the church told me I was, I was a Christian, and I tried really hard to be good, and uh, guess what? I, I didn't make me a Christian, and uh, as an adult, I became an atheist, and I've shared my story in a lot of different contexts. At the age of 25, I wasn't going to any church, and I found Jesus. Actually, Jesus found me as... Um, I did believe that uh, Jesus died for my sins. I did put my faith in Jesus Christ as a real living person. Because I grew up thinking, you know, Jesus is a dead Savior, died on the cross, did a good thing for me. Never really got that he, what it meant that he was raised from the grave and he was alive and he's right there. And if I could be in heaven where he is, I could see him face to face and touch him because he's alive. I didn't get that until I was 25. I did trust Jesus to forgive my sins and give me eternal life. You know what happened? He did. Changed everything. Changed my purpose for life, my purpose for living, 
My hope, um, whole course of my life changed because of that encounter with uh, Jesus Christ. Now, when I was a brand new Christian, somebody gave me a book. I think it was a copy that Sue had, but I think usually in, in my case, somebody else had to recommend it. And then I took it from Sue. You know, I took her advice. But I was kind of slow on that because she was uh, quite a bit ahead of me on the Christian life thing. Somebody gave me this book. It said it was entitled, How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. Some of you may know that's an old title back in the 60s. It was Campus Ministry. Uh, Fritz Ridenauer was the author. How to Be a Christian Without Being Religious. And it was a great book for me. It was full of cartoons. I learned quickly. <laughs> it gave the, uh, an entire overview of the book of Romans. Uh, kind of at 30,000 feet, and boy, that helped me. And kind of the main feature of the book, how to be a Christian without being religious. I was really interested because, you know, I wanted to follow Christ, but I didn't really like being religious. I got that when I, when I was growing up. Didn't work. And then this uh, explanation of the gospel and what it meant to be a Christian was pretty simple. Religion is about man trying to be good enough to be accepted by God. Religion is about man sort of picking himself up by the bootstraps. You know, being a self-made man. Look how good I am. And so that somehow at some time God is going to say, okay, you're good. Come on. Welcome. But Christianity really is about how God, who knows us and knows our sin and our failure... And he comes down to us because he sent Jesus down to us. That's called the incarnation of Christ. And he came down to us and took us right where we were in our sin, invited us into a relationship so that our sins would be forgiven and we'd be given eternal life and have a fresh start, a new start, a new purpose, new direction in life. Christianity is about God coming down to us, putting himself on our level and then offering a new life uh, to us. So, uh, you know, in the past several weeks, we've had several people indicate they've started a new relationship with Jesus. I'm so excited about that. And I just want to take a few weeks. We're going to focus on Christianity 101. Frankly, I think it's going to be good for every person here. If you've been a follower of Christ for a long time, how do you help a brand new Christian engage in a brand new Christian life. And so we're going to give you some things to think about. We want to help equip you to help other people follow Christ. And some of you are brand new or not very far along in your Christian walk. And you know what? You're at the right place. You're in a good place. And we want to help you uh, gain some insight. And there may be some of you here who um, still aren't sure about this whole, uh, whether I should be a Christian or not, or whether I want to follow Christ or not. I'm just kind of here to check this out, see what, what's going to happen here. Hey, you're in the right place. We want to talk to you about that. So let's start out. Following your outline, all the scripture today is going to be on the PowerPoint. I don't want you to rest and go to sleep, um, but stay with me. Here we go. First one on the, out, on the outline, what does the Bible say about Christians? What does the Bible say about Christians? The word Christian is only used three times in the Bible. What do you think of that? Only three times. You would think it might show up hundreds of times, but Christian is one of those words that we use. It's not that important in the Bible. It's okay. What does the Bible say about Christians? The word Christian was used first in Antioch. Uh, anybody know anything about Antioch? 
It's a church that sent out the Apostle Paul on the first missionary journey. Antioch was a Gentile church, not in Israel. And, you know, the church started in Jerusalem. That was like the home base. But Antioch is out to the west in Syria, and it's a very strong church. And it was the strongest missionary church of the first century, sending people, sending people out on mission for Jesus. Acts eleven twenty six, 26, um, and when he found him, this is about Barnabas finding Saul, the Saul of Tarsus, whose name gets changed to the Apostle Paul. When Barnabas found Paul, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul, who was also Paul, met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Acts chapter 11. This is years after the church got started in Acts chapter 2. So this Christian thing is not really a big deal as far as the word. Next, the word Christian was used by non-believers to designate those who follow Christ. And the passage is Acts 26, 28 through 29. Uh, Then Agrippa said to Paul, so non-Christians talking about Christians. Then Agrippa, who was the king, said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa, an unbelieving king, knew what a Christian was. Wasn't a word that Christians used to call each other. Are you a Christian? They didn't say that. Paul replied, short time or long, I pray that God will not only... Not only you, but all who are listening to today, to me today, may become what I am, a Christian. Except for these chains. Paul was a prisoner. I'd like you to become a Christian, but I don't want you to have the chains. And so, used by non-Christians. Now, Paul, the interesting thing here, Paul is sharing his personal faith story in a public setting before a king. He's got a court around him, and he's giving a defense of his faith. He's being able to speak. You know what? He's, a, he's giving his testimony. He's, been, he's really on trial here to so speak the truth. And Paul is speaking the truth, and he's giving his uh, testimony. Paul had a faith story. Do, do you have a faith story? We have nine people going to be baptized today, and they're going to share their faith story today at the picnic. Do you have a faith story? And uh, when you think about a faith story, you can divide it simply into um, what my life was like before Christ. For me, it's 25 years of junk. And then how I came to faith in Christ. I was an atheist, and I had this big weekend, and God had an encounter with me, and he changed me. And then what's my life been since then? The changes that God made in my life. That's my story. That's my faith story. Do you have a story? What your life was like before you and had an encounter with Christ, how you met Jesus and came to faith in him, And then, so what? What's your story? Can you share your story with somebody else? If somebody came up and asked you, well, how did you become a Christian? Or what difference has Christ made in your life? What would you say to answer that person? Um, Okay, next on your outline, the word Christian meant that a person had a certain kind of lifestyle. So in the first century, and and, uh, especially with uh, the Apostle Peter here, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16 However, if you suffer as a Christian, we've talked about suffering a lot, but, you know, Christians suffered in the first century. It's kind of normal for Christians to suffer. We don't like that. We just like happiness and prosperity and a good life. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you may bear that name. So if somebody picks on you 
and uh, arrests you or tortures you or persecutes you because you're a Christian, that's great. You're having an impact. People are getting it. You're different. You're the real deal. But suffer as a Christian. There was a certain expectation for somebody who was a Christian when they suffered because they, in the first century, they saw it all the time. They saw Christians get arrested. They, they saw Christians thrown in jail. They saw Christians persecuted. They saw Christians tortured. And there was a certain kind of lifestyle that was expected. It was expected that they would somehow exemplify the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that Christians were found to be things like patient and loving and kind and long-suffering and gentle and forgiving. There was this whole reputation that went with being a Christian in the first century. So, what are some other terms the Bible uses instead of the word Christian? What are some other terms? Some of these are very common. The first one I want to mention is believer. Very common term. The idea is it's, this person is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. A believer that Jesus is alive. A believer that Jesus died on the cross and paid the penalty for our sins. And that he offers eternal life as a gift. And if I believe, I receive the gift of eternal life. Acts 16.1. He, that is Apostle Paul, came to Derby and then to Lystra where a disciple named Timothy lived. This is the... Timothy that he's going to write first and second Timothy to whose mother was a Jewess and a believer. This is, I love Luke. Luke, the writer, he is giving great historical information, giving us every detail whose mother was a Jewess, meaning she has a Jewish background. She's of the Jewish faith. She studied the old Testament. She lives a high moral life. She wants to honor God, the true and living God of the old Testament as she knows. And, uh, and a believer. At some point, she became a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, both a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek, meaning, guess what? Not a believer. Just, it's something, not that Greeks are bad. It's just that the, man, a Greek was a Gentile who hadn't embraced Christianity because he would have been uh, a believer. And so we're just saying it's a term used for Christians, believer. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. This is, I was excited when I came across by this passage by accident. Do not uh, be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? This is about a believer being equally yoked. You know what the one true application is? It's about believers marrying believers. Don't be unequally yoked if you are a believer don't marry an unbeliever because you don't have spiritual things in common and you're not going to have spiritual intimacy if you are tracking in two different directions i love this passage when i came across that what a great application with all these single college students and single adults just to remind you you know what don't even date an unbeliever Don't get romantically entangled. There's no verse that says anything about dating. It's wisdom. Don't get romantically entangled. If you're tracking with Jesus and you want to find a great partner because they're not going to mix and they're not going to grow and there's there's not going to be intimacy. So wisdom, don't date. 
if you marry, that's disobedience, okay? Um, thanks for letting me make that application. That was just a side application. Another word is used is saints. You, the Bible says a Christian is a saint. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Who was he writing to? He was writing to the whole church. He was writing to all the believers at the church. The word saint is for a term for a believer, for a Christian. The word saint, and there's no uh, information in the Bible about this. A saint is not somebody supposed to be elected by the church leaders because they were somehow a superhero. There's no verse in the Bible that backs that at all. The word saint is used of every Christian. This has tremendous implications, so stay with me here. Tremendous implications. Um, A saint means set apart. If you are a saint, you're set apart for God. When you're set apart, you're always set apart for something. In this case, you're set apart for God. It means you are sanctified. That's a result of believing in Jesus. You get sanctified. It's not something you earn or deserve or perform for. It's part of your salvation. You get sanctified, set apart for God. You're a saint. Another way the Bible says you're made holy. Now, you can mess it up really quick, but that's who you are. You're a saint. Now, what's the implication here? Do you see yourself primarily as a saint or primarily as a sinner? It's a world of difference. Because... Yes, we're, we all have sinned, but when I have an encounter with Jesus and he changes my life, I'm primarily a saint. Yes, I sin. I'm not, I'll never try to convince you that I don't sin. Ask my wife. She'll tell you all about me. But I'm primarily a saint because that's how God sees me. And if I see myself more and more the way the scriptures describe me, I see myself differently. It's not sin management. It's about following Christ. That's what it means to be a saint. You are a saint. Can you say that out loud? I am a saint. Can you say that? I am a saint. That's the first step. You can say it. Good. Philippians 1.1, one, one, one more passage. Uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Just writing to the church located in the city of Philippi. That's the letter of Philippians. Together with the overseers, they are church leaders like elders and deacons, and a deacon means servant. They're not supposed to be high-powered people. They're servants of Jesus. That's who the overseers and deacons are. But everybody in the church who's a believer is a saint. Another term is brothers, and uh, some of the versions say brethren, a little bit older term, brethren. And it's a term, a Greek word, it covers male and female. It is not a male term. So please understand, it refers to those who believe, male and female. Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. To the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Savior. This isn't to the entire church. It's not just to a few people who are like super spiritual. That's not what's meant. It's a family term too, brothers. Um, If you are a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ, what does that make us? What does that make me to you? I'm your brother. Like it or not, we're family. Better start treating me like family. We're going to bicker. You know, that's what family does, right? Okay. Disciples. We've seen the word disciples already uh, is another common term. term, Acts 13.52. 
And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Uh, A disciple is the learner. A disciple is one who takes on the discipline of his teacher for training. Discipline is about training. It's a very positive term. And the disciple is one who says, yeah, hey, I I want that. I want to embrace this new lifestyle. I want to embrace the life of following Jesus. And so that's what a disciple is. Um, And these disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Are you filled with joy and are you filled with the Holy Spirit? We're going to tackle that in a couple of weeks, so please come back. And uh, Acts 6, uh, verses 1 and 2, another passage. In those days when the number of disciples, the believers, the Christians, was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained. This church problems. All churches have problems because they're filled with people. This is just one of the first. It's great that we get an example on how they dealt with the problem. The Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. They're both Jewish Christian groups. Some have a Jewish background. Some have a Gentile background, the Greeks. And they're totally different cultures. And so they clash when they come together. They don't understand. They have different assumptions when it comes. And they are trying to figure out this new Christianity deal together. And so some people weren't having their needs met, the daily distribution of the food. So the 12, the 12 disciples gathered all the disciples those learners together and said it would be not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait tables. And they're going to appoint some deacons to help them with serving the food. That's what happened there. But they're disciples. That's the point. Okay. Thirdly on your outline, how does a person become a Christian? Thanks for asking. It's a great question. And let's talk about it. How does a person become a Christian? Some of you have just become Christian. Some of you have been a Christian for a short time, some for a long time. Um, let me walk through this. First, recognize who you are from God's perspective. Recognize who you are from God's perspective. You know, we come into the world and we find out who we are from a lot of different people. Our parents help us out. Sometimes that's really good and sometimes it's not so good what your parents tell you and how they treat you. Um, we learn about it from our family members. We learn about it from our friends, you know, what they think of us. We learn about it from peers like in school or in the neighborhood. We learn about, it's, it's really about our image, our self-image. We, we learn about it from our enemies too. And we sort of come into, and we learn about it from church, you know, and we sort of, this is who I am. And, uh, but what I want to add, I want to make clear is, what about God's perspective? And, and something that's overlooked uh, is that God has a very high view of you as a person. He created you in his image and you're like way separated from the rest of the animal kingdom. And I'm so glad that I didn't evolve from some primordial soup, you know, and I'm just out of the muck and I'm, I'm just living on my glands every day. You know, what is it that I want to make me happy today? God created me in his image. Um, he's given me a, um, a moral uh, perspective. I, he, I was created with that. Um, he gave me the ability to think and to choose and to feel and uh, to create, to be creative. That's being created in the image of God. It's way above everything else. And God expects us to have, to live better than the animals. And uh, so understand that. Because sometimes, and I know when, when I was in my 20s, when I was in college, I thought Christianity was really negative and all about guilt, trying to make people feel bad and get them to make decisions out of guilt. And I never understood this high view that God has for man. 
and he would place male and female at the pinnacle of creation and put them above the whole earth and say, rule, go multiply and rule, have fun, enjoy. And uh, they, they couldn't handle that long. So Romans 3.23, here's God's perspective. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, every person in this room, every person ever born except Jesus have sinned. That means they've failed, missed God's standard, either in our attitude or our actions. We're not perfect. And so, you know, that's something we have to get. Does that make sense to you that you have not been perfect in God's eyes and you have sinned? Doesn't mean our problem is, is we like to compare ourselves. I'm not as, I'm a sinner, but hey, I'm not as bad as them. And we just forget. All of us are in the same boat here. There are consequences. Um, uh, Isaiah 53, 6, uh, clear from the Old Testament. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're like sheep. We stray. We get off the course. That's what it means to be a sinner. Uh, next, understand the consequences of your sin. Understand the consequences. The passage, key passage, Romans six twenty three. for the wages of sin is death. Uh, we've talked about this over the past few weeks. It's about spiritual death. It's about eternal separation from God. Jesus called it hell. Wages are what I earn. Wages are what I deserve for what I have done. In this case, it's going to be justice. It's not going to be what I think. It's going to be what God thinks my wages should be. Isaiah 59, verse 2. But your iniquities have separated you from God. You know, Isaiah is writing from the 7th century before Christ. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Sin puts up a barrier that keeps us from having a relationship with God. Jesus is the only one who can take down the barrier so that we can have a relationship with God. Thirdly here, know how God provided the solution for your sin. Know how God provided for the solution for your sin. Key passage is uh, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's the key. It's because God loved us. He loves you. I had a hard time with that when people told me God loved me. You know, because I didn't know why God would love me. I'm not like other people. And, um, but I understood he did something for me. It took me, it's, it's, I'm still learning about God's love for me, by the way. And it's a good thing. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for me. My name. My sin. My stuff. And he died for each one of you. Because he loves each one of you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows everything you've ever thought and everything you've ever done. And guess what? He loves you. And he uh, want, wanted to pay your penalty. Your penalty, uh, the, the wages of sin is death. And he wanted to pay for your penalty. Um, a great illustration I've heard um, comes from 1941. Um, better make sure I got the name before. I, here we go. Um, Maximilian Kobe. You, some of you know the story. Maximilian Kobe. 1941 in May, he was a Polish priest. He was arrested in Poland by the Nazis, and he was thrown into the Aus Auschwitz death camp. That was the early years. 
They weren't up and rolling very fast in the early years, but he was a prisoner as a Polish priest. They, they put, mostly they were uh, the final solution of putting Jewish people to death, the, the Holocaust. Um, Father Colby was in prison, and the practice of the day was uh, when a prisoner escaped, the Nazis would bring retribution on the camp. So on this case, a prisoner had escaped in July, and uh, so the, the Nazi uh, officer brought out the whole camp to stand before him. Ten men would be selected, and they would starve to death for the sake of the prisoner who escaped. And they would be, they would be given no water and no food until they, each one of them died. And so the ten were called out, and... Uh, Father Colby was in the, in the camp and, and was witnessing this. And one man began to grieve and say, I have children, I am married, I'm, I'm the father, of my, I have a son, I have a daughter. You know, and Father Colby stepped in and said, I will take this man's sentence. I will take his place. And so the, the officer thought about this uh, for a couple of minutes. Everybody feared that all of them would be put to death. And he said, okay, and they exchanged. Father Colby went into the group of 10. They were put into prison. They were given no water and no food until every one of them died. Father Colby was the last one who died because there are a lot of eyewitness accounts. The man who didn't die lived until 1995. And he was very grateful that he was given a life. There was an exchange. Somebody died in his place. He was condemned and somebody stepped in. It was Father Colby. That's what Jesus did for you. He took your place. You deserve the death. I deserve that death. And he stood in there and took it. I don't have to take that death now. Yes, I'm going to face physical death. But I am never going to face a spiritual death. First Peter 3.18 says it this way. For Christ died for sins once for all. That's amazing. Once. One death for all people for all time forever. Nothing more needs to happen here. Once for all. Jesus doesn't get crucified over and over and over again. And you don't get saved over and over and over again. He's paid the price. It's paid. You respond by faith to the message and believe and receive. Here's what it says. For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. He's the righteous. I'm the unrighteous. That's the exchange. Why? To bring you to God. That's about connecting with God spiritually on the spiritual level. He was put to death in the body, crucified on the cross, but made alive by the Spirit. That's Easter Sunday, resurrection of Jesus. So know how God has provided the solution. The solution's already been provided for. That's the good news. It is good. Okay? And... Um, the last point, embrace God's good news by faith. Embrace God's good news by faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is a description looking back how people get saved. It is by grace. God's favor. It's God's unmerited favor. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. I never will deserve it. I'll never be good enough, and neither will you. It's by grace through faith. It's not from ourselves. It's not about me. It is a gift of God. It's about God. Not by works so that no one can boast.
It's not about how, how good you are. You'll never, never, no matter how many good things you do, you'll never be good enough. Sometimes Christians get the idea that, well, I've been given this life, this Christian life now, and now I've got to pay God back. I've got to try to be good to pay God back. You can never pay God back. The Christian life is not about paying back God. The Christian life is about loving God back. Um, in Acts 16.31, he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is a Philippian jailer. Barnabas and Paul replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe in the Lord Jesus. He's alive. He died for you. He paid the penalty for your sins. If you believe in him, you will receive the gift of eternal life. That's what God is asking. I'm going to jump to the fourth question. How do I grow as a Christian? How do I grow as a Christian? And uh, first of all, learn to follow Christ. Let's assume you've placed your faith in Jesus. We can say cross the line of faith from I was not a Christian now I'm a Christian. I was not a Christ follower. Now I am a Christ follower. I, my sins were not forgiven. Now my sins were forgiven. Okay? How do I grow as a Christian? First of all, learn to follow Christ. Learn to follow Christ. I love the concept of walking with Christ or taking steps one by one because I need to think short steps. It's several steps throughout the day, one day at a time. It's not giant running leaps. Occasionally you have to leap, but it's mostly short baby steps. John 14, 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you will obey what I command. How do you grow as a Christian? You learn to follow Christ. You learn to express love back by your obedience, by following. What's a Christ follower? He follows Christ, what Christ says. Second of all, get baptized. Get baptized. How do you follow Christ? In the New Testament, the first thing a believer did, he was told to get baptized. Sometimes he got baptized the same day they placed their faith in Christ. Baptism had nothing to do with salvation. It was just a step of obedience, baby step. We have nine people taking that step today. Now, in our culture, baptism is complicated because there are so many views out there, and people have to sort them out. It's okay. We'll sort them out. And when they get sorted out, take the step of, of baptism. Sometimes people have been Christians for years and haven't been baptized as a believer in Christ. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 passage. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This is Jesus to the leaders of the church, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus is commanding his church to make disciples. Those people who come into relationship with Jesus, who believe in Jesus, they become Christians. Their sins are forgiven and they begin to follow Christ, okay? And then what? Jesus, the, Jesus Christ, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, desires that every one of his disciples or followers be baptized. By the way, this is not a decision your parents make. This is the disciples' decision. Okay, you ought to think about that. Uh, next, develop a plan for spiritual nutrition. We're all about nutrition these days. We have classes on nutrition. You can learn everything you want online about nutrition. Uh, but we all need a healthy diet. First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, rid yourselves of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind, because this is bad stuff. 
I mean, this is going to hurt your life. That's the point. But look at verse 2. Like newborn babies crave spiritual milk. I just got to see our most recent newborn Friday afternoon. And Emily Grace had milk all over her face. She was good. (laughs) And for a newborn, that's what life is all about. Like newborn babies. Like. This is to to Christians. Just like newborns love spiritual milk. Love milk. We as Christians should love spiritual milk. So that by it, we may grow up. Because we start out like babies and we need to grow up spiritually. Just like uh, an infant grows up, goes, becomes a toddler, becomes elementary school, and then middle school, and then high school. And here you are in college. And then we become young adults. Then we become old adults. Got to be growing spiritually the whole time. The problem is, is when it just stalls out. And we get stuck in the spiritual pygamy, uh, spiritual pygamies. Get stuck. Don't grow. I don't know. Where, where are you in this? Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. Brothers, I should not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. He's talking to Christians. Brothers, this is not about unbelievers here at all. Sometimes Christians act worldly. They're mere infants in Christ. And Paul has expectations. These should be growing up. They should be more mature, but they're acting like infants spiritually. He says, I gave you milk. He was talking about giving them teaching from God's word, not solid food. It's okay to start with milk, but you don't stay there for a lifetime, okay? You grow. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. I think Paul's getting impatient. You are, you are still worldly, for since there is jealousy, I can tell by your attitudes, jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere man? Some Christians act like they're not Christians. That's the problem. And it's related to their relationship with God's word. Because they're not taking it in. They're not uh, being nourished spiritually. And they become spiritually sick. I'm going to skip the Hebrews passage. Let's, let's jump to the next uh, D. Talk to God about your life. Talk to God about your life. This is about prayer. Talk to God. This is how you grow. Talk to God about your life. I'm going to jump to uh, Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. Matthew 6. And stay with me. We're almost there. Stay with me. Talk to God about your life. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you see Jesus assumed his followers would pray. And so he gives us instructions. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they receive the reward in full. So he's saying, when you pray, don't worry about it. It's not about impressing anybody. It's never about impressing people, okay? Don't do it that way. Uh, Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. God loves it when his children set a time privately for him and just want to spend time with him and talk to him. God loves that, okay? That's what Jesus instructed. Next uh, slide. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He's going to reward you when you spend private time with him, okay? And when you pray, he assumes again we're going to pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. So it's not about your words. It's not trying to impress. It's not the amount so that you'll be heard because you're many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. 
He does, but he still wants you to ask. He, some people think, well, I don't have to ask because he already knows. Nope. He said, pray. I could, we could talk all semester about what the Bible says about prayer. Next slide. This then is how you should pray. So here is our, this is our instruction. This is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What is that? It's a prayer request. For who? For God. For his name to be made holy. He wants us as his followers to pray for his reputation. That his name would be holy. That it would be honored. That it would be lifted up. What, what do we see here? Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then our stuff will be added. This is his kingdom. This is his righteousness. This is how we pray. First, for his kingdom. For his reputation. Um, Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will will be done. It's about his kingdom. Your kingdom, God's kingdom, your will, God's will, not my will, God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're in a transition to getting God's will done here. Okay? And he wants us to pray for that. Verse 11. So you need, would you pray for the bridge? Would you pray for uh, campus ministries so that God's kingdom will be advanced in our communities? Give us today our daily bread. Okay, now it's time to pray for us. We need stuff. God knows it. Ask for it. But keep the kingdom first. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. We need forgiveness. We need to deal with our sin. Talk to God about it. And there's an assumption there, too, that we're going to be forgiving those who have offended us. And, la- and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So God wants us to pray about our temptation to sin. We have a spiritual life. We struggle. We need to pray about it, about temptation. And then finally, we need to pray about spiritual warfare because it's real. We need to understand that. But it's, this is a model prayer, okay, for those who follow Christ. That's how we grow. Follow Jesus' model. And then lastly, do your life with other like-minded Christ followers. This is, why, this is why we're here today. That's one of it. We want you to do life with other Christ followers. There's a time when Christ followers come together for teaching of the word. That's been the model since Acts chapter 2. But that's not all there is. That's why we do growth groups. We need to do life together. We need to be in community. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another. I love that word. You know, it's, you got spurs on and you just kick the horse and the haunches. We're supposed to do that. We're supposed to, be a, we're supposed to be catalytic when we get together. You know, that we get together and we encourage one another and we, we get creative with ideas and we make suggestions and we tell about needs and things happen. Spiritual sparks happen in the body of Christ and God moves the individuals and sometimes the whole church to, to get active and to do things. To spur one another to love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Don't give up. God desires his church family to be together. And groups are a great way to be in a community, a smaller group where people know your name and you can share and grow together. People can take you right where you are. Nobody's perfect. We don't have to be spiritual giants. We just need to be on a growth track, whatever it is for each one of us. Um, So let us not give up as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another because that's what it's about, encouraging one another. It's so, if, if I just go around and tell you what's wrong, that's not fun, but encourage. And um, we can be motivated and we get, hey, 
I can do this. Thanks for, thanks for your encouragement. Thanks for thinking of me. Thanks for appreciating. Um, okay. So uh, we're started off. Christianity 101. And uh, we've talked about what a Christian is. Next week, we're going to talk about our identity in Christ, what it means that we identify with Jesus. And that's going to be eye-opening for some of you. Uh, so I uh, hope you'll come back. We're going to be about five or six weeks on this. And uh, I'd like us to stand and pray together. Thank you, Father, uh, for your word and for the instructions you give us. God, we thank you that you have reached down to us and that we don't hide anything about who we are or what we have done, and we can't impress you, and we acknowledge that. Thank you that you uh, love us and that you've offered forgiveness and eternal life to us and that you've offered us a new life, a new hope, a new purpose. And God, may we uh, take steps to grow and to follow you because uh, Jesus instructed us that if we love him, we will obey his commands. Help us to show our love for you, for Jesus' sake.